All right, guys and gals, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is where we're picking up. 1 Corinthians chapter number 15, and we're going to start in verses, or in verse number 20. Read down through verse 34. We've got two paragraphs here today, so we've got a long way to go. So what you say we hit the road running? Okay. Thank you for permission. <laughs> Buckle your seatbelt. <laughs> because there might, might be a little turbulence along the way. So here we go, verse number 20 of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says this, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man death uh, came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. After that those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to, God, uh, to the God and Father. When he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things into subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead if the dead are not raised at all? Why then are they baptized for them? Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by my boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought, and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. All right, well... What do you say we start out with a little structural analysis of this passage? And it'll help us, I think, get our bearings of where we are and where we're going. So you'll notice that there are two paragraphs here, as I mentioned earlier. And anytime we have two paragraphs, naturally, uh, we're going to have two main points that derive from the central idea of both of those paragraphs. And that's what we are going to do here. In verses 20... Through 28, we have the first paragraph. And in this paragraph, Paul is laying out some good sound doctrine. He is letting us know what it is that we can believe. And then in the second paragraph, in typical Pauline fashion, he tells us what the behavioral implications are how we should live in light of the beliefs that he just gave us. And you see, that's Pauline style. Sometimes he divides entire epistles or books in that fashion, first with the doctrinal portion and then with... The, the practical application or how we should behave in light of that particular truth. 
Now, notice again some more structural analysis. I, I, I think you'll see this. Check out with me, and you may want to take your pen and underline because this will help you walk through this. Check out what Paul does. In verse 21, after stating the, or after dropping the big bomb of this paragraph in verse 20, he gives us a, a series of four fours. Notice verse 21, four cents by a man. And then in verse 22, for as in Adam all die. And then in verse number 24, for he must. And then in verse 27, he says, for he. And then notice what we have at the very end of verse number 28, so that God may be all in all. What is that? As a purpose clause. So check out this structure. And by the way, the reason I spend time doing this with you guys is because so many people approach the Bible and they just look at it like a calf looking at a new gate. What do I do with it? Well, since the Bible is given to us in verbal form, then we must analyze the grammar and know how to deal with grammar. Remember all those things your fifth grade teacher tried to teach you about English grammar? Boy, don't you wish you would have paid attention now. Because here we are dealing with the most important text on planet earth, that is God's Word. And since it comes to us in verbal form, we've got to be able to deal with it grammatically. So check out what Paul does. Again, he gives us the main idea in verse number 20. He gives us four fours. And those fours can be translated as because. Or he's given us reasons why it was logically necessary, theologically necessary for Christ to be raised. And those four reasons empty into the bucket of the purpose clause at the end of the passage, which is so that. So now that you see that structurally, it's a whole lot easier to deal with this. And then as we move to the next paragraph, Paul begins to give us now some, some reasons or some implications of all of these truths that he's just laid out in a very logical and structured fashion for us. So let's put these two paragraphs together and let's consider the subject today. Does what I believe really matter? I mean, is it important that you believe differently from your Jehovah's Witness neighbor? Or is it important that you have a different set of beliefs and convictions than just a good pagan person who has maybe a, 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 a better ethic than a lot of other folk. Does what I believe really matter? And I think Paul is going to answer that question for us in an astounding affirmative yes as we walk through this passage. And here's why it matters. Because whether you know it or not, behavior always grows out of belief. And your conduct is always a reflection of your convictions. You see, here's the reality of it. As, 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 as human beings, psychologically, we always do what we really believe. Everything else, Caleb, is simply talk. It's simply cheap, meaningless chatter. Because we do what we really believe. I had a professor I told you that scared me all through seminary because, man, he was a sharp guy, Harvard PhD. And he would tell us on multiple or on more than one occasion, he would say, I can observe your conduct for 10 minutes and I can fill in your theology from observing your conduct. Did you know we really are like books? And a lot of times we think we're fooling folk. A lot of times we think folk think we're spiritual. 
But this truth maintains. Behavior reveals belief. Conduct will tell us what your convictions are. So now, let's check out and see what it is that Paul says about what we ought to be believing. And you see, here's why I wanted to get, wanted to get two paragraphs. Because man, uh, rather than just have a Bible lesson on doctrine, we got to get down to the practical issue of, now, how does that doctrine affect my everyday life? So that's why we put both of these paragraphs together. So here's what Paul says is, here's what Paul says it is that we should believe. We believe what the Bible affirms. And that's what verse 20 through 28 is all about. Paul is telling us what the Bible affirms. He even reaches back and pulls out Old Testament passages to bring them in. So here's what we believe. We believe what the Bible affirms. Now listen, regardless of what the heretic and idiot Andy Stanley says, the Bible is the only basis for formulating theological beliefs. Nothing else will do. By the way, you do know that he's saying the opposite today. That you can't base your faith on the Bible because what if science proves the Bible wrong? Oh yeah. And here's what, what else he says. He says that expository preachers are lazy and ignorant. Well, I understand why he says they're lazy because he's, he's never done it before. But ignorant, I would like to say to Andy Stanley in my own Facebook today that I wasn't the one who was denied entrance into doctoral school because I couldn't pass the entrance exam. So he needs to stop throwing out stuff like that and people need to stop listening to him because he's a heretic. Hear me. This is the only thing we have that we know is for certain. And can I say to you, science is not disproving it. Science is proving it. Honest scientists are proving that this word is true. Hey, if science ever proves that this word is not true, what good is our faith anyhow? Huh? Here's what the Bible says. Here's what God says about His word. The Bible says, God speaking, I have exalted my word together with my name. So if God's word is no good, His name is no good. If God's word is not right, if, not, if God's word is not worthy of our absolute belief, then friend, our God is no good. So they're, they're inextricably linked. They cannot be separated. The word of God reveals to us the God of the word. That's all there is to it. Now notice what it is in this context, what it is that the Bible affirms for us. Check out what Paul says. Number one, he says this. We believe what the Bible affirms, and here's what the Bible affirms in verse number 20. That He is risen. Check it out. Look in verse number 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. Remember in these, in these verses that precede this, He gave the hypothetical scenario of what if He wasn't. And now he comes around and he wipes all that out by saying in uncategorical terms that Jesus has been raised. Hey, do you know to deny the resurrection is really to call into question the entire justice system of every nation on this planet that respects the rule of law. 
Did you know that? Because what is the rule of law and what is the justice system, especially trial by jury based upon today? It's based upon the testimony of eyewitnesses, right? That's why the judge will stand up sometimes or why he'll, he'll hit his gavel and, and, and sustain uh, an objection because hearsay has been introduced. The court system and the justice system is predicated upon eyewitnesses. And Paul's just given us a ton of eyewitnesses. More than 500 at one time to the apostles and on more than one occasion. So to say that, that the testimony of those eyewitnesses is not valid means that the justice system of the United States of America is not either. So don't tell me that these men are lying because one of the Watergate higher-ups said this one time. He said, a handful of the most powerful men on the planet who were involved in the Watergate scandal couldn't keep the secret for, less, for more than 24 hours when they were put under interrogation. You expect me to believe that these ragtag fishermen could keep it even when they were crucified upside down? No way they could fabricate a lie and die for it. So Paul says, make no mistake about it, he is risen. And why do we believe that he is risen? Because the Bible affirms it. Check out number next. Not only does he say that he is risen, but in verse number 20, 20, 21 and 22, he also says that he will resurrect those who are his. You can say it like this. He will resurrect the saved. Check out verse number 21. Here's our first four. For since a man, by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. You see, it was, it was imperative. It was logically necessity, necessary. Since death entered the world through a man, it is also necessary for death to be defeated through a man. And his name is Jesus Christ. Now look what it is that Paul says. He throws us a curve here in verse number 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And there's a lot of folk who take that and say, You see, Christ is going to undo it for everybody regardless of their faith status in life. It's universalism. Everybody's going to be made alive. But friend, notice a little closer examination of this text. He says, all who are in Adam, verse number 20, 22, uh, uh, for as in Adam all die. Now let me ask you a question. Who is in Adam? Go ahead and say it. Say it with confidence. Everybody. That's right. Why? Why, why are we in Adam? That's exactly right. He, he, is, he is the progenitor, Right? He is the father of the human race. So all you have to do to be an Adam is be born. So here's the distinction that he makes. All as in Adam all die. Have you ever known anybody didn't die? Have not. Because that's a truth that the Bible affirms. In Adam all die. Hey, here's a sobering thought. You're going to die. Did you know that? You are going to die. You know why? Because you're in Adam. And the Bible says so. That's exactly right. So the only thing you can do is prepare for death because it's coming. I mean, we can't stick our head in the sand and act like that's something that happens to everybody else. It's coming. 
Like Billy Graham said, one day you're going to pick up the paper and you're going to read that Richie Allen is dead. But don't believe it. Because <laughs> I'll never be more alive than when I'm dead, right? But no, physically everybody is going to die. But now look what he says. Here's where he, here's where he really makes the distinction. He says, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Now listen, all you've got to do to be in Adam is be born, right? But who are those who are in Christ? Say it, say it, say it. Those who've been born again, that's right. So he's narrowing the field. He's not saying that everybody who's, who, is, who is in Adam is going to be made alive. He's saying no. Everybody who is in Adam, who was born in Adam, but everybody who was born again in Christ are going to be made alive. Man, isn't that cool? One day the most happening place on the planet is going to be the graveyard. Because resurrection is coming. Check out what else he says. Not only does he say that the Bible affirms the fact that he is risen, the Bible also affirms the fact that he will resurrect the saved. And in verse number 25, the Bible says... He will reign supremely. Check out verse number 25. And underline this word, must. For He must reign. There's our little three-letter huge word in the original language that's known as a divine imperative. There's no other way around it. He is going to be the sovereign king and He is going to reign. There's no way around it. It's already been marked off in God's economy. It's set on God's calendar and Jesus Christ is going to reign. Now, He's supposed to reign spiritually in our hearts today, those who are part of the kingdom of God, those who are in Christ. But friend, we're talking about an absolute reign. There's something else. You know, there's that already not yet part of the kingdom. And that's what Paul's talking about. But check out next. I've got to run through these. Not only will he reign supremely, but verse number 26 says he will remove all opposition. There will be no opposition to him. None of this crazy nonsense that we hear today is going to be able to stand and survive in his presence. He's going to abolish it all. Check out verse 24. 20, verse 24 says, man, here's the deal. After the resurrection, then, literally, then the end. When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has, look here, abolished all rule and authority and power. Here's what he's going to abolish. Everything that stands against God's sovereignty is gone. It's out of here. Now, how would you like to be one of those people who do that? Because there's a lot of folk today that do it. Check out verse number 26. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Now, that's pretty cool, isn't it? Son, when he reigns, you're not going to have to have as your constant companion death. I mean, how many times do we think about death every day? I promise you most everything you do during any given day, you do it with this in mind. I want to avoid death in the process of doing this. Am I right? I mean, if you don't believe that, get out of church and just blow through that stop sign up there. Huh? Why do you stop at that stop sign? That's exactly right. 
Not because the law might give you a ticket, but by golly, because I might have a head-on collision with death right here. So everybody's going to stop at that stop sign today because death is our constant companion. Man, this is so cool. When he reigns supremely, when he puts down everything that stands in opposition to God's sovereignty, you ain't going to have to worry about death. Ain't going to have to, or stop sign. There ain't going to be no stop signs, maybe. <laughs> That's right. Any of that stuff, because death's going to be gone. Wow. Man, I, I don't know the full implications of that, but that's pretty cool, isn't it? Huh? <laughs> I know. I mean, we can jump off a cliff. <laughs> you know, I, I don't think there's going to be foolishness <laughs> in heaven. I mean, it, it, under His reign. But man, just the idea that you can't be killed. It's pretty cool. You don't have to worry about catching COVID and it taking you out. You don't have to worry about a disease. You don't have to worry about cancer. You don't have to worry about anything. You know why? Because death is going to be... He's going he's to look at death and he's going to say, Hit the road, Jack. You're out of here. Check out number next. Not only will he remove death. And this is what we are to believe because this is what the Bible says. What the Bible affirms. Verse number 28 tells us, and here's the, here's the purpose clause where all of these fours empty structurally from this passage. He will reestablish the Father's design. Check this out. Look at, look at that purpose clause in verse number 28. Why does He do all of these things? So that God may be all in all. God's going to be all pervasive. Here's why He's doing this. You know, God had an original intention for, for, for life on planet earth before sin entered in. And some sin messed up this whole thing, did it not? But I want to tell you something. Our God is sovereign. And here's the most sin can hope to do. Is interrupt His plan for a little while. But ultimately if He's God and He's sovereign, His plan is going to take effect. Am I right? Now look, that, you, can, you can apply that on a macrocosm to the whole universe of all of space and time. Or you can also apply it on a microcosm to your life right now. If God's planned it, you might as well quit fighting it. Because He's going to abolish your opposition. He's going to bring you to Himself and He is going to carry out His intention for your life. If He can't do that, then my golly, He ain't God, you are. Huh? That's right. So on a macrocosm, Paul is teaching us that He will reestablish God's original design. Oh, man. Just, just, I just got to run. I got to pull myself away from that, can I? Because I got to get to the other half of this down here that we really want to spend our time. Just tells us what we ought to do in light of all of this kind of stuff. So here we go. Check out now the first thing we've seen about does what I believe really matter. And Paul tells us in unequivocal terms that we are to believe what the Bible affirms. But now in verses 29 through 34, the practical application of all of this doctrine is this. We behave as our beliefs afford. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, is my faith rich enough to afford me to act a certain way? Are you following me? Did you hear the verse that Perry read this morning? 
The verse in, in James 2 and verse 5 says that God has chosen the poor of this world to be what? Rich in faith. Rich in faith. So stop and think about it. If you're rich in faith, what behavior can your beliefs not afford? You see, that's not the problem. Sometimes we, we, our, our behavior is not keeping up with our beliefs indicating that our belief is not strong enough to get us behave in such a way. I mean, stop and think about it. Is it logically plausible for me to say that I believe God is my provider but fail to give? It's logically inconsistent. Is it logically consistent or plausible for me to say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father but by Him, and refuse to tell other folk about it? You see, those things are indicating that my belief is not strong enough to cause me to behave in a way that's consistent and logically plausible with my belief. So check out what it is that Paul says when, our, when, our, when we behave as our beliefs afford. There are about four things here that he points out as he talks about the implications of our beliefs. And number one, here's what he says. He says, correct belief in verse number 25... Correct belief prevents silly contradictions. Contradictions like I just described. Saying that God is my provider, but live like a tightwad. I'm really not believing God will provide for me if I give lavish, lavishly to His program of global evangelization. It's just a contradiction. Check out what he says in verse number 25. Check out these contradictions. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? Now stop right there. How many of you when you read that said, What did he just say? This is one of those things that when we get to sit down in heaven, I'm going to walk right up to Paul and, and, and we're going right to the main issue right off the bat. What in the world were you talking about? There's only a couple of options here, but let me just eliminate all of them except the one that I think he's describing. Now notice with me, he just describes this in passing. He does not say that this is something we ought to do. As a matter of fact, he's just using this to prove his point. Something was going on down there in Corinth that was causing them to think that somebody who is alive and born again could be baptized on behalf of somebody who died who was not a believer and that would affect, affect their eternal estate. Now friends, that's just crazy. But you see, when you're in the spiritual condition that First Baptist Church of Corinth was in, that's the kind of crazy stuff you do. You begin to say things like, the Bible is not trustworthy and it's not a, 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 a sure foundation for our faith. You begin to say stupid stuff like that when you're spiritually ignorant. And that's what was going on down in Corinth. But here's what we have to, we have to understand. The Corinthians understood more about it than we do. And they knew what Paul was talking about. But now let me show you something here what Paul is saying. Paul is simply saying to them, 
you're not even acting consistently with your own practices. Because if the dead are not raised, why are you even doing that stupid stuff? Because it's not going to affect them one way or another. So he simply uses some of their aberrant behavior as a logical argument against them. He's certainly not saying that we ought to be baptizing for the dead. It's not what he's saying. Check out with me what he says. He says, correct belief will prevent silly contradictions. Number one, contradictions of common sense. And the common sense of the matter is here, if the dead aren't raised as you people are saying then why are you doing that? You see, so it's a violation of just common sense. You don't have to be spiritual to come to that conclusion. You can just have a brain in your cranial cavity and come to that conclusion on your own. <laughs> but who was it that has recently said the problem with common sense is... Huh? <laughs> it's not very common anymore, is it? <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's not. Matter of fact, you might like common sense. It's uncommon. Maybe we ought to change, it, change our nomenclature to uncommon sense, right? I don't know. So it's a contradiction, number one, of common sense. But number two, it's a contradiction of the content of Scripture. And let me just say that they aren't the only ones. There's a lot of cults today who have an unhealthy infatuation with the dead. Did you know that? For instance, all of the animistic religions in Africa, you'd be hard-pressed to go to Africa and find a people group that doesn't believe that somehow or another the living has to constantly appease the dead. But even more than that, let's get a little bit closer to home. Do you know that Roman Catholics have the same unhealthy infatuation with the dead? That's why they pray to and for dead people. Uh, that's why they do this thing called the sale of indulgences, which set, set Martin Luther off his rails. Meaning that you can give money to the Catholic Church and you can buy one of your dead relatives out of hell or purgatory and send them on to heaven. That's an unhealthy infatuation with the dead. Let's take one more step out there. Did you know Mormons are huge on this? Why do you think Mormons are, 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 are the world's best at studying and tracing genealogies of families? It's because they have an unhealthy infatuation with the dead. Why do you think it is that Mormons take this one verse, something that the Bible reports but doesn't proport, and they build an entire doctrine of salvation around it? Because they have an unhealthy infatuation with the dead. Now, let me show you how it is here that Paul even distanced himself from that grammatically. Can I, can I show you that? Check out what he says. Look at verse number 29. There, there's a couple of pronouns he used in here that are known in, in language as remote pronouns. Now, you know remote means from a distance. Remote control. It means that I don't have to get up and walk up to my television set anymore and turn the knob. How many of you ever remembered that? Huh? Does anybody remember having to do that? Yeah. <laughs> I was my daddy's remote, huh? Yeah, so I heard the channel. <laughs> we ain't watching that crazy stuff. Turn the channel. <laughs> I'd scurry up there and we only got three channels anyway. So what other one do you want to watch, daddy? <laughs> now, let's get back to my main point, all right? 
He uses a remote pronoun. Look what he says. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? Look in verse number, at the end of that verse, next sentence. If the dead are not raised, why then are they baptized? Now that's very subtle, but it's very strong. Because Paul is distancing himself from that practice. He says this is what they do, not what we do. Do you see that? That's a big difference. He talks about those people rather than these people. So in no way is Paul endorsing this, this at all because it is a contradiction, number one, of common sense and it's a contradiction of the content of Scripture. Now, write this in because I didn't have room on my outline to put all this stuff. You wonder why I'm hurrying? Now you know. I'm thinking to give you some more stuff. Here's what it is. Here's the content of Scripture that if uh, that these folk who are baptizing for the dead violate. Here's the contradiction. The first little element of Scripture that we would say this stands in stark contradiction to is what's known as soul competency. Soul competency. Any of you ever heard of soul competency? It is one of the foundational tenets of faith. And here's what soul competency means. It means that you and you alone are responsible for the condition of your eternal state before God. You are solely competent. Nobody else can make a decision for you. Nobody else can repent for you. Nobody can do anything that's going to do anything to affect your spiritual condition other than you. Now look, soul competency... You see, baptizing the dead stands in stark contradiction to that. And that's what the Bible affirms. You can't be baptized on behalf of somebody else and expect God to accept that for them. It just doesn't work that way. But you know, there is a lot of folk today, it comes in our society a little bit more subtle than this. Here's what I run into a lot in the Bible Belt. Hey man, tell me about yourself. Are you involved in church anywhere? No man, I... I'm really not a churchgoer, but I tell you what, I, I had an uncle who was a preacher. You know what they're saying? In effect, they're saying, yeah, I'm riding his coattail because what he has, he has done is going to be good enough for our whole family. Just doesn't work that way. It's a violation and a contradiction of this Bible doctrine known as soul competency. But it also stands in contradiction to another pretty strong Bible doctrine that's known as a solemn conclusion. Now, you know what a solemn conclusion is? It's just that. By golly, it's the sad end. And here's what the sad end is. Hebrews chapter 9 defines it like this. It's appointed unto men once to die. Once to die. And after that comes the judgment. Hey, listen to me. After you die, not only can there's nothing anybody else can do that will be credited to your account, but after you die, there's nothing you can do. You enter into the judgment hall of God to stand before Him based on what you did with what He revealed to you in His Word in this life. After you're dead, it's over with. Hey man, it's the end of it. Boom. As soon as your body falls to the ground and biological death takes over, it's done. 
Now let me ask you a question. Are you confident enough to stand before God on how you've responded to Him if you were to die suddenly right now? Because here's how a lot of people are living. Pastor Richie, I know I ought to do this. I know I ought to do that. But I, just let me get through with a few of these things and then we'll get to that. See, that stands in stark contradiction to what the Bible calls a solemn conclusion. When you die, no matter what you intended to do, it only matters what you did with the message of the gospel. What did you do with Jesus? So not only does this stand in contradiction to the Bible doctrine of soul competency and a solemn conclusion, but it also stands in contradiction and in violation to what's known as a sacred command. And you know what a sacred command is? The sacred command is one of the two ordinances that Jesus left for the church to practice. One of them is the Lord's Supper and the other one is... Baptism. That's exactly right. And being baptized for the dead is a misuse of this sacred ordinance that scripturally we only have one reason to baptize somebody. And you know what that reason is? That they have become a believer. They've been born again. They're saved. They're a new creation. And baptism represents the fact that the old me has died, gone underwater, and the new me is walking in his resurrection power in anticipation of him resurrecting me one day completely. So it's a violation of a sacred command. Friend, I only have one reason. I, there's only, the Bible gives me authority to baptize you one time. And that is when you become a believer in Jesus Christ. Here's what the Bible affirms. The Bible affirms what's known as credo-baptism. That means believer's baptism. And get this, the word baptism means immersion. It doesn't mean to sprinkle. It doesn't mean uh, to spit on or anything else. It means to take somebody and put them. You can't bury somebody. Hey, have you ever went to the graveyard and saw them sprinkle dirt on a casket? They, they bury that thing, do they not, eventually? Now look, a friend of mine sent me something that was funny the other day because we got a lot of friends that somehow or another are drawn to Presbyterianism. You know, Presbyterian, they'll baptize babies. Well, that's a contradiction to a sacred command. And they also just sprinkle them or drizzle water over them. And a friend of mine sent me this picture. Miss Marge, you got that picture we can throw up there? Check this out. Any of y'all like to eat milk and Oreos? You can't read it, can you? Well, let me point it out to you. It's a little bit too small. Here's the way Baptists eat Oreos. Look at that. Cookie, milk, we baptize that baby, right? We dunk that Oreo. Now, Presbyterians really believe sprinkling is good. Here's how they'll eat an Oreo. They'll just put their finger in the milk and just dab it on it. The... <laughs> can't help but have a little fun somehow or another, huh? I mean, this stuff is serious. <laughs> We've got to have a little fun somehow or another, but that's hilarious. <laughs> you think about it, you'll laugh later. I know sometime in church people turn their laugh boxes off. 
Can't laugh in church. <laughs> but that's funny. So here we go. Look at this. It's baptism from the dead. Paul distances himself from it. And he says it's a violation of common sense. It's a violation of the content of Scripture. Hey, can I, just, can I, can I stay on this baptism thing for just a little while longer? It's a sacred ordinance that Jesus gave us. And we best not misuse it for any other reason than biblical reasons. But not use it for any other reason. And I've got a bunch of friends that they took a trip to the Holy Land. And you know what they did? Wanted to be baptized in the Jordan River. And I said, what's the matter? Did you just get saved on this trip? Well, no, we just want to be baptized where Jesus was. Well, you're an idiot. We don't baptize simply for emotional reasons or to pacify your desire. We baptize when God gives us scriptural authority to do so and the only way we do that is if somebody has been born again, then we baptize them. Notice, you're born again, then you're baptized. So many people I know today did something when they were five years old and they got baptized and they didn't get saved until they were 26 years old. I got news for you, that wasn't baptism. That wasn't credo-baptism. You were just dunked underwater in a religious ceremony. So that's why sometimes you see us baptizing folk and that's their testimony. We're not misusing the sacred command. That is the only time it's really been implemented in their life because you can be baptized before you're born again as much as you want to and that's not baptism. All that is is playing in water. So check out number next. Here's the behavioral implications. Correct belief prevents silly contradictions. Not only does it prevent silly contradictions, but correct belief promotes spiritual courage. Spiritual courage. Look what Paul says, and, and I started to put this in the negative, shape it in the negative form, but I, I'm learning from John Wilson. Say it in a positive way if you can. Because <laughs> I'm drawn to the negative. I started to say it prevents spiritual cowardice. Huh? And you can do that because the opposite of courage is coward. The opposite of coward is courage. So however you want to say it. But notice what Paul said. Was Paul a spiritual coward? Absolutely not. Look what he says in verse number 30. Why are we in danger every hour? Now look, you see, now he uses we. In verse 29 he said those and they. Now he's applying it to himself. Look, if there was no afterlife... If there's no resurrection, then I'm an idiot to put myself in harm's way every day for the sake of the gospel. That's what he's saying. And look what he says. How did he put himself in harm's way? Well, look at verse number 31. And I love this verse. I affirm, brethren, by my boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. Here's some more. Here's some veiled Pauline humor for you. You know what he's saying? He's saying... (laughs) He's saying basically... (laughs) It kills me to brag on you idiots. (laughs) But I do. I mean, look at it. Look at it again and see if you don't see it after you read it a couple times. And like I say, it's some veiled uh, 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 Pauline humor. I affirm, brethren, I'm testifying by the boasting in you which I have in Jesus Christ, I die daily. Now, uh, there really is something to this principle of dying to self every day. Because if you don't die to self... You won't do anything for anybody else, let alone him. 
So Paul says, I die daily. And here's the reason why so many people are spiritual cowards. You won't believe. You, you do know that it's six or seven years. My sole responsibility in ministry was to be a mission mobilizer. Heather and I have done so many mission conferences, we've heard every excuse why folk aren't, aren't missional today, Jerry. You can't give me one that I hadn't heard. Including the fact one guy says he wasn't going because he was out of peanut butter. I mean, just anything. <laughs> but most people won't go because they're scared. They're scared that when they leave the security of the U.S., they're going to die. Well, so what? Where do you go if you die? Yeah, I mean, come on. Is our belief consistent with our behavior or not? So, here we go. He says, correct belief promotes spiritual courage. Look, Paul says, if from human motive I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? And then he quotes one of their philosophers and he says, if I don't believe this stuff enough to behave accordingly, then here's what we ought to do. And the whole quotation is, let us eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. In other words, it's hedonism. Let's have all the fun we can today because nobody has a promise of tomorrow. And I want to tell you, too many people who name the name of Jesus Christ live like that. Huh? Check out number next. I've got to hurry. Correct belief prevents a shameful condition. Look at the shameful condition. Notice what Paul says in verse number 34. He finishes this up by saying, I speak this to your shame. Now here, here's the shameful condition. Look what he says right here uh, in verse number 34. Some have no knowledge of God. Period. I speak this to your shame. Then you see that word that's translated no knowledge? It's only used two times in all the Bible. So it is a hypox legumenon. It's only used two times. And it's not the normal word that we translate as agnostic. People who are just say, well, I'm ignorant about that. That's what agnostics are saying. I'm ignorant. I don't know. This word means to be, write this down, culpably ignorant. Culpably ignorant. Now here's the difference. There's such thing as culpable ignorance and non-culpable ignorance. And the word culpable just means simply blamable. It's your fault. Because here's, the real, here, here's, a, here's a good comparison. The Quilombolas in Brazil, where Dane and Cheryl are today, and where Heather and I worked for years, they don't have the Bible. So are they culpably ignorant of principles contained within God's Word? No, because they don't have the Bible. So whose judgment going to be worse for them? Or people or Bonifay who have access to God's Word? See, that's the difference between culpable and non-culpable ignorance. Well, Paul is saying that these folk here are culpably ignorant. And here's what Paul is saying. It means they have plain evidence in front of them, indisputable, undeniable evidence of the gospel, and they choose to say, no, I will not believe it. That's culpable ignorance. Now, let me get to my next point, because here's why they were culpably ignorant. They were culpably ignorant because, or, or let me just say it like this, uh, our, our next point, because correct belief points out a sinful cause. So it's the cause for their culpable ignorance or them saying, I have all the evidence in front of me, but I'm still going to choose not to believe that. Here's what it would be like today. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand because every, every one of us knows somebody like this. It's like those people today that still believe the earth is flat. 
Huh? I mean, all you got to do is get on a boat and notice that your vision stops at 26 miles. That's a marathon because of the curvature of the earth. You don't have to leave. I mean, forget satellite images. Forget men going to moon. Forget all of that kind of stuff. Plain evidence today, even the Bible teaches us that the earth is round. I wish I had time to show you that, but I just don't. You see, that's culpable ignorance. That's having all the facts in front of me and me saying, no, I'm not going to believe that, I'm going to believe this, because this is my reality. Right here's the problem. You're not judged according to your truth. You're going to be judged according to His. Huh? So check out what it is that Paul says is the sinful cause. And here he gives us three rapid-fire imperatives. Those are commands. And you can sense the... the, he, He almost sets it to a beat, he gives them in such systematic fashion. Notice what he says in verse number 33. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. So the first cause of people being culpably ignorant, other people, not us, is fooling ourselves. Fooling ourselves. Because... Here's what Paul does. You see that? Let's do a little grammar here. Do not be deceived. It could be translated as passive or as a middle voice verb in the original language. And I think it's a middle voice. Because a middle voice means the subject's doing it to himself. So anytime you're deceived, bottom line, doesn't matter who deceived you. If you get deceived, whose fault was it? You better believe it. So that's why I think it's a middle voice. doesn't matter how slick the charlatan is, by golly, we ought not be fooled so easily. So if I get on the internet tomorrow and some slick-talking con artist tricks me and scams me out of all of my retirement, number one, he wouldn't have very much. Number two, whose fault is that? That's right. That's why I don't get these folks. Just about every day on news, there'll be some idiot on TV saying, Oh, I was scammed. (laughs) And it's crazy stuff. It's old women falling for some charlatan who's saying that he loves her. Send me a million dollars. I'll be there to pick you up tomorrow. (laughs) If you get deceived, son, it's your fault. Did you fall off a turnip wagon? Were you born last night is what I want to ask sometimes. Huh? And Paul's saying here that when we have people in Bonifay, Florida that's culpably ignorant, it's sometimes because the people of God are fooling themselves. And here's what Paul says you're fooling yourself about. Look what he says. He gives, a, uh, he gives two colons, or this text gives two colons, and he says this, quotes another popular play in his day that says, bad company corrupts good morals. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about those who we hang out with and those whom we listen to. You can't hang out with a bad crowd and expect to be spiritually good and healthy. It doesn't happen. He says, quit fooling yourself. And by the way, right here, the bad crowd he's talking about is those idiots who are baptizing one another for dead grandpa. That's who he's talking about. I mean, look, Paul is not politically correct in any sense of the imagination, son. He gets right to the heart of the matter. And here's what happens. Man, you go ahead and start hanging out with people that you ought not be hanging out with. Look, and, and we're not even talking about lost people. 
We're talking about those who claim to be believers. Those are the ones that Paul says, look out, stay away from them, because a little bit of leaven will leaven the entire lump. So Paul says, don't fool yourself in thinking that who you hang out with doesn't have a detrimental effect on you. Because it does. And can I say this? Here's what happens. Here's what happens. Here's why people in Boniface sometimes refuse to believe. Are you with me? I got to hurry. I got to hurry. I'm right on time here. Here's why some people refuse to believe. Because so many Christians and believers are fooling themselves. Thinking they can do whatever the heck they want to with whomever they want to not realizing that you are giving people evidence why not to believe what you claim to believe. Here's what goes on. Grace Church can have a hundred transformed, New Testament, Spirit-filled, God-honoring, Christ-exalting, missional believers right here. A hundred of them. And yet have one turd I'm telling you, have one turd that associates with us, worships with us, but doesn't live like a believer. And here's what people in Bonifay will say. Those who are looking for a reason. They're saying, huh, I know somebody goes to that church. And here's what he's doing. They'll discount a hundred good testimonies And they'll focus in on that one. They'll say, I have a hundred good evidences right here. But I choose to believe this bad one. Therefore, I'm justified in not believing. Good company, bad company, corrupts good morals. That word company can be translated conversation. Meaning those whom we're hanging out and listening to, giving ear to. Check out number next. Here's the cause of people being culpably ignorant. Number one, fooling ourselves. Number two, faulty thinking. Faulty thinking. Look what he says. Here's the next, here's the next rapid fire command. Be sober minded as you ought. Some translate it, some translate it like this. Return to your senses. Quit thinking wrong. Do you know how many admonitions there are in the Bible for believers to use their mind properly? We've been given the mind of Christ. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We ought to be some of the sharpest thinkers on the planet. Hear me. I don't care who is in the philosophy department at Florida State University. By golly, we ought not be afraid of them because we ought to be able to outthink him and run circles around him intellectually. Huh? I mean, come on. He says, start thinking right. And so many times folks will say, well, Brother Rich, I just didn't think it was a big deal. And that's the problem. You wasn't thinking. Turn your brain on. Paul says that's the reason why so many people are pointing at somebody and saying, for that reason I'm not going to believe the gospel. Check out number next, and i got to be done here. I done wasted all my time today talking about baptizing Oreos or something. (laughs) What's the cause when folk won't accept the, 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 the evidence that's before them? Number one, when believers are fooling themselves or we're fooling ourselves. Number two, faulty thinking. And then finally, false beliefs. Remember, Paul's talking about here, he's writing this entire chapter against the false belief that there is no resurrection. 
So here's what gives definition to his third and final command. Look what he says. He says, stop sinning. That's pretty, that's pretty definitive, ain't it? I mean, it's, I can just hear my daddy right now popping his finger and saying, you know. <laughs> and by golly, what would you do, Jerry? You ceased and desist right then, huh? And that's what Paul does here. He pops his apostolic finger and says, stop sinning. And in context, what is the sin he's telling them to quit doing? Believing junk. Believe in false doctrine. Believe in unbiblical stuff. Because that affects your behavior. And your behavior is causing lost people in Corinth to say, ain't no way I'm ever going to do that. And that is a serious, serious thing. Does what I believe really matter? Man, you better believe it does. Because we really believe it. Bottom line is, we'll behave it. Would you stand with me, please? Father in heaven, thank you for your word. It's far too rich and complicated to contain in a short time. Matter of fact, throughout all eternity, we'll stand amazed at the intricacies of your word. So, Father, my prayer is today is that we'll do exactly what the Bible says. We'll start believing right. And then we'll start acting right. I pray for those who are here today that you're calling into a relationship with yourself. And today's the day of salvation. Today's the day when they are taking account for themselves spiritually. And they'll place their lives in the hands of Christ. The only safe place in all of existence. I pray for those who need to be a part of a local church because that's what the Bible affirms. I pray for those who need to be scripturally baptized because that's what the Bible affirms. God, whatever you have said to us today, may our behavior show what we really believe. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Colin Dollar is right here. Dr. John Wilson's here. Uh, Brother Cliff is here. If God says something to you today and you need to take a step of faith, in Jesus' name, find one of these men. They'd love to pray with you.